Hello everyone and welcome back to the History New Books podcast series. I am Dr Gabby Storey and for episode five today I am joined by the wonderful Dr Sabrina Mittermeier to discuss her new book A Cultural History of Disneyland's Theme Parks Middle Class Kingdoms. Sabrina is a postdoctoral researcher and lecturer in American cultural history at the University of Cassel, Germany. She has several forthcoming edited volumes focused on fandom and popular culture, including Fan Phenomena at Disney, which will be due out in 2022, and the Routledge Handbook to Star Trek. She is currently embarking on a second book project dealing with unmade queer television in the United States and West Germany. Thank you so much for joining us today, Sabrina. Thank you for the invite. Very welcome. Disney is such a, it is the essential in a way kind of cultural phenomena that we have globally. It's such an enduring part of life today and as part of 20th century history. So I'm wondering with such a project, such a topic, how did you get into this? You know, what made you kind of choose Disney in this specific aspect of it? Yeah, so I'm basically a nerd. That's <laughs> that's why. Uh, so this was actually my dissertation project, and that's not unusual that it's a monograph because in Germany that's what we do with dissertations. We do have to publish them almost immediately to actually get our title. So this was my dissertation, and my parents took me to Disney parks since I was a little kid. They took me to Euro Disney when it was still called that when I was like four, and then when I was older, we also went to the United States. When I started this, I didn't even know if I was going to go into academia. I didn't even know what that would look like. I just knew I wanted to do a dissertation. It seemed like a good idea. And I was really into the parks then. It kept going again when I was in my early 20s and figured out that there hadn't been all that much written on them, believe it or not. So there was academic research into them, but a lot of it had happened in sort of the early 90s and it was all about sort of the 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 criticism of American cultural imperialism and a very sort of negative outlook on them but there hadn't been all that much that looked at them as a more well-rounded you know studies if they had been fairly outdated by that it just turned out that these the stuff that I was really interested in was also something that could still be uh, looked at academically so I ended up doing that so it really needed kind of a fresh perspective and an update compared to previous studies. And uh, you just touched on the fact that you went often as a child, you carried on going as an adult. So was that kind of your inspiration to carry on with it? You know, the fact that it had been such a huge part of your life. Yeah, definitely. And it was a good excuse to keep going and at some point even get funding to keep going. <laughs> Believe it or not, it was really like it was sort of a passion project always because it meant I could really start to look into all these intricate details. And it helped that it was a fan because there's some stuff that if you don't care about the subject matter, you probably wouldn't even know about it or find out certain things because you wouldn't go there all the time or, you know, start reading all of these fan blogs or reading all of these books Disney puts out in them, etc., etc. Did you manage to visit all of them as part of your research? I think there's a, what the golden year was like 2016 when I actually set foot in all of them in the same year, mostly because Shanghai Disneyland only opened in 2015. So in 2016 is when I took one trip there. And then obviously I did a bigger trip that also included the other two Asian parks, Tokyo and Hong Kong. And I just also ended up being in the other ones in the same year because uh, that's when I had funding and that's when I had time to do it. So yeah. 
the golden year of 2016. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's most people's dreams, I think, to be honest, yeah, to be paid, absolutely. to be able to go to Disney. I mean, I didn't get as much, like, I still had to pay a lot. <laughs> what was the most interesting thing you found out, or perhaps the most unexpected thing that you found out whilst you were researching? I also really, like, looking into the international parks, I had no idea that Tokyo Disneyland was as popular and as successful as it was and still is, for instance, that there's such, such an avid fandom for the Japanese Disney parks. There's like really a lot of fascinating history around all of them. And also with the Cold War stuff, all these things about, oh, Richard Nixon was there when they opened the monorail or the, that boomer that Nikita Khrushchev wanted to visit the park and then because of security reasons didn't go. Some of it is really, really odd, but it also shows you how kind of important Disneyland has become and how long it's been around. So yeah, there's just all these bits and pieces. And I think some people who've read the book also said that that's often the most interesting thing when are all these little anecdotes about how all of this has come together. Yeah, absolutely. And kind of highlighted the internationality of it all, especially when it's, I know your research is largely focused on the parks, but obviously it's not just the parks, it's the merchandise, it's the films, it's everything that comes along with it. Going to Disney is such a journey in terms of being involved in that world. And kind of leading on from that a bit, how did you think about approaching it? And because it is everywhere, and I know we'll move on to a discussion about the different, perhaps exclusionary aspects of Disney, but it has a resonance with people of all generations. So you kind of point, highlighted like you've got Anaheim from 1955. So it's something that's endured. That there's not many people who won't have grown up with Disney in one way or form now. So how did you think about approaching it? And whether you wanted to do all the parks or if you just wanted to have just maybe focused on America. Yeah, so in the beginning, my project looked very differently. So I, I had thought about sort of the American parks, but also especially the first one as sort of, oh, is this like a quasi-utopian space? It was a very sort of theoretical project that wanted to deal with utopia and sort of a post postmodern look on all of this because that's where the research had gone that was the existing body so if you start reading and you're sort of still starting out with your dissertation this is like oh this is what's there like let's look at that and then I moved away from that very quickly it also had to do with me being in a research project then on time and temporality in theme parks so I thought a lot about time like the how the past is depicted in the parks how the future is depicted in the parks but it, they moved on from there because I then started to realize that obviously the things that haven't been written are the things I should be focusing on. And it's actually also the things that I care about. And since my background is in cultural history, it was, okay, I actually want to look at all these circumstances, all these little anecdotes, all this historic context and cultural context that mattered when these opened. Why do these, these parks even exist, essentially? And then it was also clear that the massive body of work academic body of work that exists on them is usually focused on the American ones that also obviously has to do with who does the research and so on. So I decided if I want to do this, what would be really interesting is look at all of them and look at all of them in that context when they open. And so you end up with this 60 plus year history. And so that's basically at some point I was like, okay, this is the angle I want to take. I want to look at when they open and what that context was and then you can you easily already have a structure for it that's very straightforward and you can just look through all of them 
from Anaheim to Shanghai. So, And I think this is something that this kind of approach and some of the other aspects you've talked about, the fact that it's a passion project, the fact that you have a unique perspective to bring to it is something to almost encourage PhD research or indeed people approaching new projects full stop is making sure that all right you might be building upon something such as those histories from the 1990s that you've mentioned but that everyone can have a fresh perspective a fresh angle even on something as popular as this if it's not been written about in this way and I really enjoyed about your book in particular was how much of the histories I was unaware of. So, for example, at the beginning in the first chapter, you talk about some of the exclusionary aspects of Disney in terms of the costing and its classes and racist and I, potentially to an extent ableist as well consequences. And I was wondering if you came across changes or attempts by Disney to try and make it more inclusive. And also now, do you think that there is still a classist aspect to it in terms of the affordability of it? Oh, yeah, definitely. So it's the thing really is, if you look at it from the beginning, that's also why the book called Middle Class Kingdoms is that they their clientele was always sort of the the middle class and obviously the middle class is a very loaded term at this point so but in the 50s with the economic boom and all of that there's there's just this massively growing middle class right so it they have a very big audience and obviously comparing the cost of getting into the park from then to now is ridiculous but obviously we have to take inflation into account and how money actually works so back then you would pay a dollar to get into the park but then you still paid for the individual rides now obviously you have like one ticket and and i mean this is where the exclusion really starts obviously because not everyone at that point in time can just afford a dollar the other thing is to get to disneyland you have to have a car this is the 50s when there's white flight to the suburbs and Disneyland is basically like a suburb it's in Anaheim there's nothing there at that point it was orange groves before that so there's just a level of accessibility to it and obviously ableism also plays a big part and this is actually something I don't highlight really in my work but it's something that also is should be looked into there's still so many aspects of these parks that haven't really been discussed academically and it's also racist in so many ways, just because obviously, again, this white flight happens and anyone who has that kind of access and money is largely white. There is a black middle class in 1950s America. Disneyland is also actually listed as the only place in Orange County in the Green Book. So that book that black travelers used to know which places are safe for them to go to and where they're welcome. Because obviously this is a time when a part of America is still segregated, right? So, but I mean, if you look at, how the park is built it's all about white audiences like there's so much racist imagery in the parks even today so if you look at it today i think so my book really makes the point that all of the parks are always work when they target the middle class successfully and obviously that becomes very interesting when they come to asia because they do the same thing but obviously not the audience is white anymore it's definitely if you look at the cost of it now i think it's even more exclusionary when it comes to just the money aspect because there are graphics you can find online that show how much the entrance fee for disneyland has risen relative to sort of the basic income of americans 
And I mean, the prices keep rising every year consistently, even during the pandemic. And it's become, I think they're really starting to price out the middle class if there even is such a thing anymore, which is a whole other question, right? In terms of other exclusion, in terms of racism, that's where Disney has definitely started to try and make things better especially really recently so a lot of the racist imagery in the parks that's essentially been there since the 50s is to be found in Adventureland for instance so because all of Adventureland is a racist concept it's colonial imagery essentially and there were all these very racist depictions of indigenous people in the Jungle Cruise ride and they've removed those just now really and also with the film coming out and obviously Splash Mountain that's only been there since the 80s but it's based on the animated segments of Song of the South which is this infamous racist film and they're now gonna remove that so they're gonna retheme it to Princess and the Frog so the the film with the black princess Tiana they are trying and they also they made uh, so they have the system of the keys in terms of guest services the four keys and for the first time they added a new key which is inclusion so they've also become more outwardly like queer friendly towards the employees because a whole other tangent but Disney has always had a ton of queer people working for them and a lot of queer fans and they've always been aware of that but how they deal with that has always been very complicated so I think there's change happening but they sometimes don't fully seem to understand what's actually for instance racist about what they're doing it's not just always the very blatant depictions of something it definitely remains exclusionary i mean there are because you brought up ableism in terms of how disabled visitors can access rights and so on there's always been support for that there's always support structures in place but they also keep changing because there were cases where there was abuse so people would bring someone like a wheelchair user in their family along and then have 10 people ride all the rides without weight stuff like that they even started paying wheelchair users and it was a whole mess but generally they're trying to be inclusive it's not just they don't always get it i think what would actually make these spaces overall more inclusive in much more subtle ways but yeah definitely like you say it's one thing removing the representations and imagery and aspects of colonialism but it's another thing to, in terms of being aware of the socioeconomic background of people who want to attend and making sure that they're able to purchase the tickets like you said that they're able to actually get there in the first place and in terms of it being a more welcoming atmosphere in terms of what staff they actually have on site and as you mentioned earlier the audience which they actually portray Disney the audience they're gearing the parks towards and so you mentioned the Jungle Cruise attraction which came up last year as being revamped and when you were conducting your research, what was one of the more controversial or contentious kind of acts? And I say controversial or contentious by our modern day interpretation of it that they've done in their attempts to create this entertainment venue for all and how they overcome this. So do you think Jungle Cruise has perhaps been one of the more controversial things that's appeared or of their all of their other ones you discovered? Yeah, I think generally, as I said, all of Adventureland is sort of, there's something that's a very romanticized take on colonization that happens there. And it's this thing that obviously if you're a kid or just very uneducated about things, like before I did all my research and got my 
university education, essentially. I didn't recognize it as such. I kind of had a fondness for it because it's something I grew up with, right? And and for instance, the Indiana Jones franchise perfectly fits into there. And that's full of colonial imagery as well. And I still have a soft spot for it. You know, it's that weird thing. Um, but if you really start to think about it and know about it, it becomes much, much harder to enjoy it. And that's what it is. And the same in Adventure Land, one of the things are like the Enchanted Tiki Room is also wrapped into this colonial imagery. And if you look at the history of it, the way that Dole, Dole exported all the pineapples from Hawaii, and they're obviously part of colonial infrastructure and they're the sponsor of this. And if you look at all of this and if you know all of this, it's horrible. Also in the in like in the early years of Frontierland in the 1950s still, they had an Aunt Jemima character, a black woman was working at one of the restaurants, which was a, sponsored by I think what Quaker Oats, and they had Aunt Jemima as one of the characters on their uh, one of their food products. And she's a minstrel character, right? So if you look at into all of this history, it's something you would encounter in a lot of places in 1950s America. So Disneyland definitely isn't unique, but that also doesn't excuse Disneyland you know it's not me saying oh you know they were just part of their time no the time was racist and it's still racist now it has sort of just shifted to what that looks like I think it's it's just because you said like just because they remove some more explicit or more obviously racist things doesn't mean that they remove the actual root cause you can't decolonize a colonial space you know what i mean you can try you can remove the obviously blatantly racist things but that doesn't change the fact that you're romanticizing colonialism anyway so over the history there's always been things all the way also the way indigenous people are treated in frontierland it's a western fantasy and that's always anti-indigenous like it's also <laughs> it's also colonial right it's literally called frontierland as I said, Song of the South, still having a presence even now is kind of ridiculous. And now I think it's also, it's turning really, Disneyland has over the years often been sort of a space where culture wars conflicts are being carried out. And I think that's definitely happening now too. It was a very often shared article like on social media about in the Orlando Sentinel about a fan of the parks who said, oh, Disney is being too woke. So, you know, that kind of agenda. And it's creeping in and there's all these discussions. And it's only gotten worse with, obviously, during the Trump presidency. Also, if you look at the Hall of Presidents, that attraction in Florida, with that, where they usually have audio animatronics of every president of the United States. So they obviously had to add one of Donald Trump and now of Joe Biden. And in both cases, when they were added, it was a massive outrage from either political side. And it's really interesting what happens there, I think. And, Disney obviously always tries to appease all of their fans and tries to appeal to all of their fans. But at some point, I think it becomes really hard to do this without offending anyone. They're going to be a lot more careful sometimes. And especially in Florida and Walt Disney World, there is just a more conservative fan base. And I mean, just being conservative is not the problem. Obviously, right being very, very right-wing conservative is the problem. Absolutely. I mean, like you say, you touched on the presidency and the issues and the political dynamics that brings in, because if they hadn't erected a statue of Donald Trump and people know that they were breaking with tradition and, like you said, people being too woke about things, but then equally he was very divisive figure who committed a lot of wrongs as a president and didn't deserve to be commemorated in that manner. 
Right. Yeah, and I mean, that's that's exactly the problem of what should Disney do in this case? I never expected them to take a stance and say, well, Donald Trump is a white supremacist, so we're not going to put him in the Hall of Presidents. That was never going to happen. But obviously, then you have that problem of you have these Trump supporters who often take exactly that uh, role and they come to the Hall of Presidents and they're happy to see him there. And there's like, all these altercations actually happening between visitors and yeah, suddenly it's, I mean, Disneyland has never not been a political space, but I think it's become more obvious to people that it is because of things like that. I feel like we could almost go on a whole other discussion about the issues of confronting white supremacy and racism through cultural heritage. And I'm sure you're aware there's been many discussions in Europe and in America as well about how we tackle these kind of representations. Yeah, exactly. And around. I mean, that's also like, it actually sort of directly ties in if you look at where the hall of presidents is located it's in a part of magic kingdom that's liberty called liberty square and they only built it in the 70s as I, at least i make the argument as a reaction to the bicentennial of the united states and that was a whole heritage celebration essentially and sort of ties in with all these heritage attractions like monuments like memorials like museums etc so Disney has always participated in that. Disney has always been a very patriotic space, but obviously it has also shifted sometimes what that actually means. I think it's going to be very interesting how they're going to continue with all of this, trying to be inclusive while trying to also be supportive of the diversity of the cast members that work for them and the diversity of the fandom that they have without risking of like offending anyone that's as I said it, it, it's probably not gonna work anymore but this is why they're sometimes so ambivalent in their actions I think because they don't want to ever lose any customers <laughs> yeah absolutely and actually going back to one of your earlier points you mentioned obviously you talk about these narratives that Disney's kind of woven throughout the parks and we're speaking about the revamping that's going on obviously you've mentioned the songs of the south frontierland and jungle cruise and has this been really a very recent phenomena or have you seen earlier examples of where they've been tackled about these kind of sensitive subjects in terms of they've got representations wrong the, the interesting thing with Disneyland, and this is also what makes it so hard to write about it or chronicle it in any way, you would really have to write a whole comprehensive history for each of the individual parks to track everything that's changing because it's constantly changing. There's always new shows, new rides where something is refurbished and changed or removed. Or and sometimes it's because of reactions to basically cultural changes. Pirates of the Caribbean is one of those examples where in the 90s already there was a big discussion about a scene where there's pirates, you know, the pirates are ransacking a village and they're chasing after women. And obviously that implies that they're going to rape them, right? And people were like, well, we couldn't, you can't actually do, like, we don't want to show this anymore because even though children might not get the implication of it, it's glorifying something we don't want to glorify. It's also just, you know, misogynist. And so they changed it and it's changed into the women chasing the pirates out of the house. So they just reversed that. But that was already a big controversy. There was always parts of the fandom. They're like, oh, you can't change this ride because it's such a classic ride. It's from the 60s. It's one of the last ones Walt Disney himself oversaw. You know, there's just this history to it. But the company changed it and they knew it was going to offend some people, but they also knew they had to because it was no longer a thing. And even only a couple, and I'm saying a couple, but it was pre-pandemic, like let's say four years ago or something, they changed another scene in the ride 
with also about there's an auction and they're also auctioning off women. So it's like, I'm still surprised that when they did that earlier change, like kids earlier, they didn't also change that. But they also changed it into an auction of goods instead. And there's now a female pirate too. So this stuff keeps happening and there's always backlash from certain parts of the fandom against it. And in terms of historical depictions in Epcot and the American Adventure Pavilion, it's one of the more, it's kind of like Liberty Square where they do directly, you know, exhibit some parts of American history and they have a big attraction there that tells parts of American history. And it was always very whitewashed and obviously it's still Disney, it's still a theme park. They didn't want to go into the intricate details of slavery or or the Vietnam War or whatever it was. But they did at some point revamp it and they did consult with historians to be, you know, more accurate in their depictions of history. There have always been changes through time, but the result is always still trying to appease as large a group of people as possible, like sort of find the least offensive common denominator of all of these things. This is a thing that if you touched on in that it's a you know it's classic it's tradition it's history can't remove it versus actually we are living in the society we are now we have moved beyond the values that were around when that image when that ride when that narrative has been constructed so we do need to move forward and actually it sounds like Disney is to an extent realizing the extent of its cultural influence on people you know those narratives are what they are projecting to visitors to the park which are often not to young children the stories they're going to come away from Disney with and obviously your work is comparative it does look at all the Disney parks which is fascinating and I know you've touched on obviously Hong Kong and Shanghai and Tokyo and what were some of the key differences you noticed the company took when approaching the construction of these parks outside of America and in particular I wondered if you could touch upon some of the issues they had with Hong Kong Disney. As I said already it's kind of interesting to know that Tokyo has such a massive fan base and I think when people think about Disney they they do and rightfully so think about cultural imperialism but the thing with Tokyo was that it's really that is a Japanese company that approaches Disney and says we want to build a Disneyland in Tokyo so it's not Disney wanting to expand abroad at that moment in time which is the early 1980s and so because it's that approach it also means what they're doing there is basically do a clone or at least sort of a hybrid version of both Magic in the Park in Florida and Disneyland Park in Anaheim and built that fairly quickly and ever since because it's so popular Tokyo now has a second park which is probably the best park Disney's uh, Imagineers so their designers have ever built and it's that opened 2001 so much later But it's really interesting that this is sort of the way it went, right? That this is essentially a a Japanese product. It's also run by a Japanese company. And and Disney is basically like they're paying Disney licensing fees and they have Disney designers do everything. But Disney is only earning certain percentages of ticket sales and, and food sales and merchandise sales. And they're actually not making a lot of money of it. They really miscalculated that one. I think they got like five to ten percent of things and it's a massive amount of money that they could have made had they just gone there themselves but at that time it was would have been a big risk so they didn't do it 
and Hong Kong is really interesting because they had always wanted to go to mainland China. So in the 90s, they start to negotiate with the government, the Chinese government, and don't get anywhere. And so they build in Hong Kong first because obviously Hong Kong is a British colony and there's a handover of that colony back to China in 1998. So that's a whole contentious history. And I mean, if you followed any of world politics surrounding Hong Kong in the last few years as well, you will have noticed that there's a lot of protests against the you know Chinese government now having taken over Hong Kong. It's it's a whole like, I'm not an expert in this by, by any means, which also was really tricky in writing this. I don't claim to be an expert on any of these politics, but it's definitely interesting that Disney then decides, well, let's go to Hong Kong first, right? And they, they make an agreement with the Hong Kong government, and the chapter is sort of missing is, I mean, Tokyo is really, really successful, and the thing they're doing in between Hong Kong and Tokyo is go to Paris, which is this really ambitious park that at first fails financially, because they're trying to do such a big thing, and there's all these contexts. I have a whole 50-page chapter about that. But the thing is, by the time they're coming out of this, they lost a lot of money in Paris. And it was, they're suddenly a lot more timid again in what they want to do in their international endeavors. So what they build in Hong Kong is basically a very lackluster park in the beginning. So they have trouble making that financially viable, mostly because it's an inferior product. It's not even just that they don't get people to go because... I don't know, they don't like Disney or something like that. I mean, it's also hard to kind of sell it to some of the visitors, especially mainland Chinese visitors who often come only for a day. Like they have, there's a lot of sort of bus group tourism coming there and there aren't a lot of people who want to stay longer in the park. But it's also not var warranted because it's a really small, like Lester Park. And the park only really becomes successful when they expand it later. And now it's really nice. They have really like, they have more unique rights. So there's pressure then from... The Hong Kong government to make it more interesting and give them more unique content especially as then at some point it's again on the horizon that Disney will build another park on in mainland China because there still is that rivalry between Hong Kong and mainland China so there's a certain national pride like and also just you know having Hong Kong as a cosmopolitan city and so having a Disneyland is sort of a it's you know, it's a big deal in terms of tourism, obviously. Um, that's what he wanted to begin with, obviously to create jobs, but also to just have that as a signal of where cosmopolitan we have at Disneyland. Disney starts to negotiate again about building in mainland China and eventually that results in Shanghai Disneyland in 2016. And it's a, also a very massive endeavor that will keep expanding over the next few years and decades. Obviously, the pandemic has hampered some of these plans along the way, but um, I have no doubt that it will continue to expand. And this is why Hong Kong suddenly starts to ramp up again. They're like, well, you know, don't neglect us, give us more stuff build new cool rides here and that's what they've been doing they also build that's really hilarious they changed the castle so the cat like all of them all of the parks have the castle right and the castle they have in hong kong is a clone of the one in anaheim and it's really small um, and uh, allegedly that happened because of a miscommunication they thought they were going to get the bigger one from florida so they always didn't like it that it was small and then when shanghai disneyland opened they built this massive new enchanted storybook castle there it's the biggest they have there's like rides in there and stuff and so hong kong was like well if shanghai is going to get this big castle we have to make our castle bigger so they just reopened the castle there and it's now much bigger so 
this is the kind of pettiness level in terms of the rivalry between Hong Kong and Shanghai. But I think as a visitor, as a fan of Disney, it's actually cool because now you have two really cool parks in Hong Kong and Shanghai. And if you come from abroad, most people still visit both, right? It's not that big of a stretch to then just hop on another plane if you're already flying all this way. So Hong Kong was, there were many motivations behind it, but it was also a prototype which just didn't quite work out initially but like you said they've transformed it now so it is obviously become more of a focus they're more confident with their approach to it after their kind of initial issues shall we say with how it worked yeah definitely I mean I don't have any access to like numbers how well it's doing financially obviously now with the pandemic that will have changed so much in in terms of all of this because none of them would have made a massive amount of profit or if they have done in the in the U.S that only because they let so many people go and they've raised prices so much. Like Disney stock is doing fairly well again, so that's not a problem, but obviously that's also not just parks. So in terms of Hong Kong, it's like they really expand and they keep expanding it. And there were some of the first parks that had Marvel rides in them and going to get more of that. Definitely also draws to go. And what the thing that Disney is doing now, like in the past, even like maybe 10 years ago when I started this, there never really was a feeling that they were advertising, especially the Asian parks to, for instance, all the fans in the US. But now they've really started to do this and they started to promote the Asian parks more on their official blog and in their social media channels. And one other thing they're doing now is like they're building on, as I said, all these Marvel attractions and Marvel lands in almost all of the parks. And they want to narratively interconnect them in terms of academic lingo that would be like transmedia storytelling. And they're specifically making a point of that all connecting, just like the Marvel Cinematic Universe is always connecting to each other. So there will be, there's all this incentive now that they're obviously trying to get at least this part of the hardcore fan base to go to the international parks. So I think that has also shifted in terms how they market them and who their audiences are for each of them. Thank you. It's such a change. It's an interest to really unpick some of the issues behind it because we just view Disney, I think, if we're not closely studying or looking at it, as just a continual almost success story and can't imagine that there would be so many kind of intricate circumstances behind what makes it a success and how how it's had to change its approaches over time and I'm just thinking about the book more broadly kind of what's the key maybe idea or discussion that you would like someone to have from your book I know obviously you've covered so much in it it might be difficult to kind of narrow it down to one when you've uh, looked at so many important issues I mean the key sort of one of the obviously narrative strands running through sort of the thesis uh, is that class is a factor that really matters in the success and failure of the parks if they that specific targeting of a middle class which even with Shanghai Disneyland was so massively important to them it is a booming Chinese middle class now or it was when they opened and when they were built I think that's the thing. And the other thing for me really always is that you cannot possibly look at any item of popular culture, but especially also these like physically existing spaces without considering 
the actual cultural and historic context of when that happens and who is doing it. I have real trouble. I, I mean, this is obviously also my training in my cultural history, but I have real trouble in people also even analyzing films sometimes just only as a text, you know, like without looking at the context and the author. And I think that's easier with a book. I, that's, I think I get it more with literature, but with things like film or television or theme parks, there's so many authors in so many ways that are involved with this. There's hundreds and hundreds of people who shape the final product and in terms of theme parks that also constantly change over years all the time there's even so many more people that shape them and and the audiences and the fans also matter so much to the outcome of it and I think that's that hopefully also comes across in the book that if you wouldn't look at this you wouldn't really fully understand what's happening there yeah absolutely and I think you've raised a really key point there in terms of different mediums that are available to us because I mean I think from my own experiences a medievalist and how we think about how the middle ages are depicted on films and it's an entirely different approach an entirely different kind of head of analysis you've got to put on in order to look at films when you've got directors and script writers and the original author sometimes depending on what they're basing it on and how you approach that and like you say it's a similar-ish concept when you've got to look at theme parks when there's as you say it's a constantly evolving thing it's not static in the same way a film or a book is now static there's always more to unpick from it I hope that as your book is really frankly open access it's available for all of us to go and enjoy at our leisure which is a really welcome and thinking about moving forward so has this kind of set the foundations for some future projects I know I mentioned in your introduction you're looking at your Disney and fandom yeah definitely so I mean the weird thing in like in the German academic system is that my second book has to be something completely different than my first I know in Anglophone academia it's mostly oh stick with one thing and become an expert in it but that obviously doesn't mean I'm done with Disney because now especially since the book has come out uh, last January people are actually reading it and actually know that I'm an expert like before that you know it wasn't that obvious to people that this is one of my specialties during the pandemic put together this fan phenomenon Disney book so it's a it's with also it's with intellect books like my monograph is too but they have that series of volumes on fan objects texts different television shows and so on and I did the one in Disney and I worked with a bunch of people who I already knew and some of who came together with me via social media and we started, you know, we had a Zoom meeting once where all these Disney studies people just came together and a book grew out of it. So we have all these contributions of like different aspects of theme park fandom, but also we see film and any, all kinds of other media that Disney produces. And yeah, and I'm I'm chairing the Disney Studies area for the Popular Culture Association conference next year for the first time together with Peter Bryan. And it's Sunday. I'm I'm back sort of knee deep in Disney stuff as well. And you know, writing I wrote some blog posts, things like that. It just keeps going. There may be another monograph happening I can talk about yet but yeah so it's it definitely there's more on the horizon to do with Disney despite also working on queer television stuff now that's not Disney but it's nice to have other projects which like you say are still your passion projects it's still what you hold close to your heart but 
also have the opportunity to look into other things but I'm sure for those of us who have really enjoyed your book and not had chance to think about Disney in this way before we'll keep our eyes peeled for the forthcoming work you're doing on it so thank you thank you and that wraps up today's podcast so thank you once again to Sabrina for coming and discussing your book with us I will post the link for those of you who are interested in the podcast notes and thanks again for joining us today thank you